Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm Paul Anderson. As America recovers from a torrent of devastating natural disasters, from record-breaking floodwaters in Houston to massive wildfires in the Northwest, it's hard to say anything that doesn't seem trite or sentimental. In these moments, we're sharply reminded of the limitations of words, of our utter inability to make any sense of tragedies so massive, especially with long, prosaic reflections. It's times like these that I turn to music and poetry, to mediums that evoke rather than explain. So as Houston took on trillions of gallons of water last week and ash fell from the sky in Seattle, it seemed like nothing less than a miracle that one of my favorite bands, The War on Drugs, released a stunning new album entitled A Deeper Understanding. Introspective and contemplative are not qualities typically associated with the bombast and swagger of rock and roll, not like they are with blues or folk or soul music, but a deeper understanding, the highly anticipated new record from the war on drugs, somehow manages to carry the torch of true rock and roll and thwart its conventions at the same time. 2014's Lost in a Dream was their breakout record, a slow-burning, moody dose of modern arena rock, and their latest often dwells in the same shadowy sonic and emotional landscapes, to be sure. But this record gives the sense that frontman Adam Granduschel's past reckoning has led him and his listeners to a higher plane. In an era where the ironic slouch permeates both the style and substance of indie rock, this deeply personal record offers an invigorating antidote without slipping into the faux sincerity of so much canned Americana. The massive scale of the sonic landscape, coupled with Granduschel's plaintive croon, his lyrics as sharp and bright as shards of glass, mirror the singer's vast inner life. But it's hardly navel-gazing, more leaves of grass than heartbreaking confessional memoir. In Holding On, he howls, isn't all memory just another way of saying goodbye? before tearing into a rift that could split a log. This music is big enough to fill a stadium. Ethereal, echoing synths, guitar riffs that twist and compound like electric coils, falsettos like Howling Wolves or the ghosts of Bruce Springsteen, and yet it often feels like stepping into a confession booth or stumbling into a cathedral at midnight where monks are vaulting their Compline hymns into the waiting air. Today's guest is Paul Willis, widely regarded as one of our greatest living nature poets. A professor at Westmont College in Santa Barbara and an Oregon native, Willis's poetry and essays often dwell in wild, wide-open spaces, in the lush Cascade forests in the Northwest or in the dry and fragrant Santa Inez Mountains behind Santa Barbara. When a wildfire tore through the foothills surrounding Westmont College in 2008, scorching half the campus and dozens of faculty homes, Willis was there with his pen to survey the damage. 
He's the author of four books of poetry, including Rosing from the Dead and his latest, Getting to Gardiski Lake, along with a fantasy novel and a collection of essays. His work has been featured in the Best American Poetry and on Garrison Keillor's Writer's Almanac. Here he is with image editor Gregory Wolf. Paul Willis, thanks for joining us on the Image Podcast. Thank you, Greg. Paul, I wanted to talk to you today about your latest book, Getting to Gardiski Lake. I don't know if I pronounced that right. It's That's correct. Pretty, pretty simple pronunciation, I guess. Um, beautiful collection of poems. Um, I read it all last night. I absolutely loved it and got me to thinking about a lot of things. Um, I love to talk a little bit about the content of the poetry in here, but I also got really curious about some of the process involved not only in making poems, but in making a book of poems. So if it's all right with you, I thought maybe I would lead off with a couple of questions about how a poet puts a collection together. Well, sure. Uh, this is my fourth full book of poems. And I think each one has come together in a similar way. You write poems throughout the year and send them out and some of them end up in journals, and after a while you start thinking, well, maybe maybe I've written enough for a collection here. And then another voice says, no, no, there's not enough. And you say, well, there might be. And then, so you get them out, all that seem viable and eligible, and then I find a really big conference table somewhere, and I start laying them out like cards. You can playing solitaire, I guess. And uh, then they, they start raising their hands, I guess, as if they're school children. You know, I, I want to be in the book. No, I don't really belong in this book. And um, it, it's a week-long process, usually. Uh, several hours a day of shifting them around, taking them off the table, putting them on. And then, you know, you sh most books of poetry are divided into sections. And so you start thinking, well, which ones belong in the same sections? This particular book has named sections, and they don't always, but I noticed that there, there were poems that had to do with the community in some sense, whether that was friends, family, uh, encounters with strangers. I noticed there were, and so that went in a section called gatherings. And I noticed that there were a more than usual number of persona poems, mm. poems written not in my own voice. And so I collected them in a second section called Voices. And then since uh, I'm an English teacher at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, I had a few poems about what I do every day about teaching and life on campus, those belong together in a section called Lessons. And uh, my wife and I spend quite a bit of time uh, outdoors, mostly in the Sierra Nevada, up in the Cascades in the Northwest where I'm from, when we can get there. And so I write plenty of poems when I'm out in the wild and 
I, I put those in the last section called Latitudes. Beautiful. Now, let's just take each section by turn. Okay. <laughs> I'd love it if we could read at least one poem from each section during the course of the conversation and maybe dig a little bit deeper into, into this process. So thanks for the exegesis of, of the sort of sections and how what goes into them. Um, gatherings uh, comes first. And I guess in some ways um, you can certainly speak to this out of your own experience, but you think of family, you think of community, you think of, of the places that give you nurture. I guess in some sense that struck you as a, a way to begin, because in a way it, it's where we come from. Well, it's also a, a desire to gather the reader into community with me, in a sense, in the book, inviting them into some sort of virtual or imagined or historic community, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, the first poem I love and feels to me, again, you can correct me if I'm off ba base in any way, but um, it feels to me a poem uh, about vocation in a way. How about that? About finding your voice as a poet. I may be wrong. Why don't you read it for us and then just talk a little bit about it, if you don't mind. And I may pop a question or two in there. Sure. I grew up in Corvallis, Oregon, in the Willamette Valley, and my father was a biology professor at Oregon State University. And uh, there's a little state park about 10 miles up Highway 99 at which there were lots of department picnics, church picnics. And uh, so this is a nostalgic poem in some ways called At Helmick Park. I turn off 99 to rest my eyes, parking under the Douglas fir, the big leaf maples, century old farms of my cousins and uncles round about. Maybe 50 years ago, on this brown grass, a department picnic, my father with his newly minted PhD, helping himself to baked beans that soak through the paper plates, and I observing a softball game of teachers, graduate students, and children, much too shy to play myself. But the light, low and rich in the sky, the fresh spring colors of maple leaves, the department chair standing spry behind the plate as umpire, a burly graduate student smacks a long one past center field. Foul ball, cries the chair. Someone's fifth grade daughter taps an awkward dribble into the weeds. Fair, he cries. I hear the echoes, even now, the guffaws of protest, the rich astonishment of that girl ghosting her way around the bases. I could have played, I thought then. There is room for me in this world. Fair, foul, foul, fair. Even now, I am calling them, calling them. As I go. Oh, it's wonderful, wonderful poem. 
that that last line, as I told you earlier today, just just slays me the 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 sort of echo um, of the repeated phrase. So again, feel free to correct me, but I, I I sort of sense in this poem, yes, the nostalgia, the childhood memories, but I I sort of get a sense of you uh, as a personality, as as an individual. Uh, it seems in some sense that you're an observer, that you're shy, that you are seeing this world but hesitating before entering it. And yet, and of course you think to yourself, I could have played, um, which is, is a way of trying to respond to that shyness or that mm -hmm. reticence. And yet, in a sense, you do participate in the world because as observer, you're already becoming a poet. Am, am I am I way off here? Well, that's very nice. <laughs> okay. That's a that's a beautiful reading of the poem, Greg. I, you know, I. Uh, it it's amazing how many writers I meet who talk about being shy children, you know, when they were younger. I don't know if that was true for you. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> I I've always hid my shyness under a kind of bluff type okay. A personality but there yeah. are a few select people on this planet who sort of know the quivering introvert within <laughs> <laughs> okay well we all have we all have that quivering introvert um well certainly uh there is a call to participation in the poem maybe i'd point to the central stanza uh after after i announce my shyness i, I say but the light low and rich in the sky the fresh spring colors of maple leaves. And there's something I'm responding to and participating in, even though if I'm not really in the softball game because right. I'm too afraid to play. But I'm very attentive and, of course, confused uh, by this department chair umpire who calls the home run a foul ball and, and, the, and the dribbling foul ball, the fair ball. And... Uh, He's teaching us all something, and I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, I guess the final line, uh, even now I am calling them, calling them as I go. I, we, it, well, we're all called to respond to the world around us and what is fair and what is foul, and naming what is fair and foul is the job of a writer, I suppose, maybe yeah. what you're getting at. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and I, I, whether you intended it or not, the word calling just mm -hmm. gave me that little frisson of a sense of calling as vocation. And at any rate, that's what one reader saw in this poem. I think that's great. Oh, love it. All right. So um, you're putting together the collection. You're working on these sections. Um you're looking at your own, you're stepping back and kind of looking at your own work. You're looking for themes. And the second uh, section, though, is less maybe thematic, but more a matter of a formal device in which you have a persona speaking that's not yourself. Right. Um, how long has that been true for you as a poet? And what? how do you get drawn into a poem like that? Do you sort of... Is it, again, a matter of hearing something, hearing uh, the intonation, the texture of another person's mind or consciousness or personality that, that you just find attractive and want to sort of capture? 
Well, maybe it's part of being a shy observer. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, in my uh, uh, attempts to write fiction, uh, some of which have been modestly successful, I, I, uh, it's a tricky thing to catch a person's voice in dialogue, and, that, and that's what separates a really good fiction writer from a sort of good fiction writer. And I don't... I can think of many, many fiction writers who are better at dialogue in fiction than I am. And, and yet, uh, somehow in a poem, maybe you have a little more license to shape, reshape that voice in a lyric way. And it's, it's fun to do. It's, it's a little liberating, too. You can get tired of your own voice. And I enjoy the challenge of trying to inhabit uh, someone else's. It, it can also be an exercise uh, in empathy. Uh, sometimes I've, I've uh, maybe a couple of these poems, well, one of these poems, uh, we don't necessarily have to read it, but it's by, uh, it's called Idaho Pearls. It's by a man who's uh, married to my mother-in-law, and he's an old... Uh, He's an old Idaho hunting guide. He, he was, in fact, a hunting guide for Ernest Hemingway. Wow. Uh, he, he's about as crusty and uh, racist and uh, all the rest as you can get. Uh, and he'll sit down and tell one story after another. And, you know, you can get irritated with that kind of company or you can say, well, let's do something with this artistically. And right. so... You know, I know that one of the big debates of the moment, um, and it's political as well as aesthetic, is about appropriation. Can a writer oh, write about right. and represent some experience mm -hmm. other than his or her mm -hmm. own? Um, I, you, you must at least have an implicit philosophy that when you do a persona poem, presumably the empathy trumps any, so to speak, um, any attempt to simply uh, appropriate what you're writing about. You're trying to give voice to something that has a curiosity, an intrigue, a humanity in some way, even if it's very different than your own. Uh, yeah, I don't see it as appropriation. I see it as attempted connection. And, uh, you know, would Shakespeare have been able to write even half of what he wrote if he were scared about appropriation? You know, would we have Othello, for example? Well, you you got me. Um, and, and we have the Merchant of Venice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm with you there. Well, I, I'd love to get one of these poems in, if you don't mind. I mean, I've got a couple that I like, but I don't Why want don't to be too bossy. One? Well, given that we've got um, talked just now about the importance of serious political questions in art, uh, how about Q&A? Would you be up for that one? Well, sure. Um, I was visiting... Uh, off-campus program in Africa 20 years ago and uh, was taking off in a plane out of Johannesburg in South Africa and was sitting next to a South African businessman and so decided to try to record our conversation in this poem Q&A. Look there, he said, and pointed out the window of the climbing plane. More swimming pools in Johannesburg than you have got in Los Angeles. And 
there were many. Little strings of aqua jewels that necklaced every neighborhood. The man was on his way to finance gold mines on the shores of Lake Victoria. They would leach the gold from piles of ore with cyanide, a cunning way. Do you worry about the water? I asked. The groundwater? He closed his eyes. Just look, he said. Look at all the swimming pools. Yowzers. <laughs> yeah, that that's that's a really that's a sucker punch there, that poem. Um in part because you let him sort of condemn himself out of his own mouth, you know, with the sort of simplicity of the way that he's kind of in a sort of denial here, right? Yeah, and this may not be a very empathetic poem, Greg. I mean, it, it, I, I hate to say it, but m maybe sometimes uh, persona poems are used as, as gotcha poems or, yeah. or as, as instruments of mockery even. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Well, I mean, it's a paradox here that um, you have somebody who's, you know, proud of his nation, but there's a kind of lie at the heart of that. So um, the yeah. irony is, is, is certainly one way to treat this, but I think you have a legitimate way of doing that because, you know, you have created a context in which what he says you know, resonates with a, a larger reality than either of you. So in that sense, you're not placing yourself above him. You're kind of a witness to something that mm -hmm. um, that really kind of sucker punches you in terms yeah. of just the... I, you know, I was thinking of our mutual friend, David James Duncan uh, in Montana, who I think took a full year out of his writing life to defend the Montana River, I forget the name of it, but it's the river featured in Norman MacLean's The River Runs Through It from uh, cyanide gold mining on its shores. Uh, so I, I was surprised that this wasn't an issue in this African venture uh, with such an issue here in the States. Yeah, well... Different nations seem to have different levels of sensitivity, yeah. and uh, I know that has to do with, uh, you know, the complex legacies of history and politics. Oh, yeah. But um, all right, well, that's great. So, um, moving on to the third section, cleverly called lessons, because yes, you are a teacher and you are um, essentially a shill for literature. You're 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 touting the, the beauty of the word, but it it's a, a complex um, and sometimes uh, tricky business to be in. And I think the pleasure that I took in many of these poems was, you know, the recognition both of the ideal, the the beautiful ideal of passing on knowledge, but then the somewhat more uh, sort of muddy um, life of professional uh, teacher, but also the mystery of how real love for literature is passed right. along. Right. It's a little bit apostolic, I think. It is. Well, and it's not know, as linear as anyone thinks it, it, you know, and maybe it shouldn't be, but mm -hmm. there's always that, that sense of, uh, you, you know, that, that students will pick up or not pick up 
mm-hmm. on different things than you think they will or at different rates than you think they will. And sometimes in the end, you really don't know what it is that's going to touch them. No, you do not. Well, here's a poem that you've, you've, you've written called Introduction to Literature. Again, I'm being very bossy and picking them all for you. But I just, again, just love it and feel like it opens up some of these topics. So if you don't mind. Sure. Introduction to Literature. I am not sure what it is that you should know about poetry. There are certain satisfactions involved. I can say that. The presence of ourselves and others felt in the hand, like the snug fit of a loaf of bread or a woman's breast. It is nourishing, yes, and mysterious in the pleasures it offers. A good poem knows how to explain, but not in a way that can be repeated. It is explanation heard in the blood, reducing us to the proper state of mute surmise. How can I tell you we need this? What can I possibly put on the test? We need it the way we need wild rivers and uncut jungles. You see, there is a connection there. Debase it, perhaps, as metaphor, but I shall not let you. For your exam, sleep in the rainforest seven years, and when you awake, Trace the Amazon to its roots in the fluted faces of the Andes. From the summit of Huascaran, find an eagle to ride to the sea. When you first glimpse the Pacific Ocean across its wings, accidentally drop a seed from your sleep-wrinkled collar into a desert valley below. When that seed grows on the bank of a river and a whole forest with it, you will know the worth of what you have done. Since I will be dead, and so will you, there will be no one to give or to receive your A. But that is the justice of poetry. Oh, man. Poetic justice. It's a lovely poem, in part because it it really tangles with such a difficult question. That is, how do you teach the beauty of literature, which works in ways that transcend mere explanation, mere propositional language. How does the teacher of literature not reduce, kill the very thing, you know, or, or as Wordsworth says, we murder to dissect. Um, and you tackle with that a little bit uh, in the first part of the poem where you you say a good poem knows how to explain, but not in a way that can be repeated. So that that's a way of using somewhat explanatory language to nonetheless point us towards the mystery and the oddity of, of great art, that it doesn't become proposition. And then you say its explanation is heard in the blood. So mm-hmm. talk about this a little bit. Tell me what you were thinking in writing this. Well, I think this poem may have been written 20 years ago when I was newer to teaching and perhaps more frustrated on this question. And here I was full of the vim and vigor of, of learning to write poems and feeling the beauty of the poems I was reading and, and then trying to fit all this within the academic confines of a classroom where, you know, some of the students, particularly in a 
general education class. They just want to get a fair grade out of the deal. But to answer your question, which was well put and well asked, um, I think um, a, a way of teaching poetry is, first of all, reading it with, with some degree of heart and sensitivity allowed. Uh, and, and, and never never letting a line go by without treasuring it uh, with my voice or, or trying to. You know, as, as, as soon as the lines of poetry become, you know, scraps of evidence for whatever point I'm trying to make, then, then you've lost, then, then, you've, then you've demoted the literature. I also um, ask uh, students quite often to memorize poems, uh, to write them out. Uh, I was disturbed to see that Harold Bloom, who's still teaching at Yale in his mid-80s, says he stopped doing that because, uh, well, poems are they're available to them digitally. They don't need to do that. Mm. And I wanted to say, Harold, you're wrong. I mean, the, the, the poems uh, that need to be hid in their hearts to use scriptural language to be heard in the blood to use yeah, your poems right. yeah. terms yeah so i tell them you know i i want you to have these poems inside you and they'll be useful to you you'll be standing in grocery store lines and you can recite these poems instead of reading national Enquirer. um <laughs> uh, and i i would say thirdly um teach by listening to the responses that students have to the poems, and if there's a connection you're seeing, uh, you know, let's listen to it, honor it, and not not overrun the students' responses with with whatever my responses are to the poem. So there's some modeling, uh, there's some listening that goes on. Now this last stanza, you you go into this beautiful kind of flight of fancy where your exam is this sort of uh, dream vision of, of heading into the jungle, into the Amazon. And I guess I'm curious, in what sense do you mean that the uncut jungle is like poetry? I mean, in one sense, one imagines, most of us think poetry is highly structured, highly ordered, highly crafted, a work of artifice, and yet the uncut jungle seems to be the absolute opposite. It's, it's un, untouched wildness. So where is the connection? I mean, I know it's in the lines that you, you well, read, I but I think tease I'm, it out a little bit without sure. dissecting it. Yeah. Um, well, as I say, I grew up in Oregon and exploring the forest behind uh, my house, my town, and, and getting a little older and climbing in the Cascades and Wilderness became a place of mystery and exploration and surprise and discovery. And I find I enter a work of literature in much the same way. Uh, that's, that's a, this, maybe this is a side conversation, but that's why the, the, the emphasis these days, these days on, on, on predicting measurable student learning outcomes bothers me so much. Uh, it, it needs to be an adventure is not something you box up and and measure per se. Uh, so I'm, I'm I was probably trying to get that a little bit into the poem. I, just as you don't know what's around the next bend in the trail, uh, 
Um, you don't know what's on the next page. You don't know what the student in front of you is going to feel mm. in that encounter. Right. And you want to be alert to it and, and recognize what's written and uh, what the response may be in the, in the moment. Yeah, I mean, there has to be room for surprise. Um, because without that, everything becomes predictable and structured and, mm -hmm. and in a sense, oppressive at that point because where is the freedom to, to discover and to move, move freely in the world at that point? Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Okay, which is the perfect segue to the final section, which you call latitudes, and that's, that geographic word um, is appropriate because I think a lot of these poems are about nature and particularly a number of them have uh, little signatures at the end of the particular uh, national park or forest or uh, wilderness that you were in at the time. Now again, I can I can pick the last poem and just utterly rule tonight or if you've got a favorite here, I suppose it's only fair to let you pick one. Oh, I like the last poem. Ah, great. good. Great minds yeah, think alike. That's the title poem of the book, Getting to Gardiski Lake, which is a little lake near Yosemite National Park. Getting to Gardiski Lake. This trail, as if it is young, bounding straight up the hill, does not believe in switchbacks, the better to feel the strength of the slope. And when it leaves the shade of lodgepole for a crease of morning meadow just beneath the lip of the lake, we are glad for the quick trip up, this leveling into sunshine. Wild iris and wild onion accompany the path here, purple islands of applause. And beyond the occasional white bark, our lake makes a quiet appearance, resting in its windblown saddle. The grass around us is already amber, sign of another snow-short winter, but strokes of green climb broad and open swales to the north, and then the trail ends before reaching the shore, as if to say, you can see it from here, my job is done. And we step forward as if we are hardly allowed off the map into the world. Mm, lovely. All right. So again, you are moving off the map. You're going into the, the unknown, into mystery in a sense. Um, I noticed that in this book, there um, aren't, isn't a lot of maybe directly theological language, but would mm. it be fair to say that perhaps it's a little bit under the surface there? There's this kind of inherent religious sense, I think, in a way, in the poems that you're going to explore the beauty of creation, this world that's a given, that's kind of a gift that, that we have to discover and cherish. I love that particular phrase about those, those flowers as purple islands of applause. Well, lovely. we earned that applause. <laughs> lovely, <laughs> lovely, lovely phrase. Uh, well, I think, uh, I think you're right that the faith element is often... Implicit. I do have my explicit poems of faith here and there. Uh, I often think of it as, uh, well, there's this evangelical expression of uh, uh, accepting Jesus into your heart or having Jesus in your heart. Uh, 
and it's as if we perhaps don't believe in our own expression because we think we need to keep talking about him. But you know, if if he's in our heart, he he he's there. Mm. And I uh, to feminize the metaphor, you can think of Jesus literally in the womb of Mary, and she didn't need to go around announcing that she was pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> she was. Yes. It's just it. It's what we are, and hopefully it'll. Our faith will find its way into the the love, the care, uh, the empathy, to get back to that word with which we approach our subjects. Right. Yeah. So you've written a lot about nature. It, it doesn't seem to get old for you. It doesn't seem to, you know, it's, you, like Hopkins says, you find the dearest deep down freshness in, in nature still. Boy, it's always there, you know. Um, my, my next book of poems, hopefully, will be uh, entirely a book of nature poems uh, based in the North Cascades in your state, Washington State, where I was fortunate enough to be an artist in residence at North Cascades National Park recently. And uh, most, most of that residency consisted of uh, just long hikes on my own with the liberty to stop whenever I wished to, to write about whatever and everything kept calling and and still calls uh, I don't know if that makes me unique I, I think that capacity uh, for response is is present in everyone yeah. to some extent yeah. although there, there are differences I you know I live a hundred miles north of LA and I'm not too much part of the Los Angeles literary scene there is a kind of urban feeling to the poetry that I realize is not part of my experience. Um, but to call nature poetry, uh, pastoral poetry can be sort of a condescension or a denigration. It seems more than that. I, um, well, what else is there? It's, 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 it's our home. Yes. It's where we are, where we live. Beautiful. And that brings us home. Uh, from the book that has come out to the book that you're working on next that we'll all eagerly look forward to. Thanks for joining us today, Paul. Thank you, Greg. If you missed the memo from last episode, the next issue of Image will feature an exclusive, previously unpublished excerpt from Flannery O'Connor's College Journal. Go to imagejournal.org slash subscribe to get your copy of this hidden literary gem. Thanks for listening to the Image Podcast. Stay safe. I'm Paul Anderson.